Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 12, says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in baptism. We saw him go for a time of prayer and fasting and preparation for ministry, preparation which Satan attempted to disrupt through temptation. Also, prior to this text, Matthew has presented us with the ministry of John the Baptist. John was the prophetic forerunner for the Messiah King. His ministry prepared the pathway for the Lord Jesus to come. But now we get to this point of transition. John, verse 12 tells us, John is arrested and imprisoned. Jesus, in turn, picks up the exact same message that John preached in verse 17, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus initiates in this text a kind of close-knit ministry by calling a, a handful of men, fishermen, to be his disciples. And he also launches a, a public ministry in verse 23, going throughout Galilee, teaching and preaching and healing. So as Matthew records this transition to the public ministry of Jesus, which is going to be the content of the remainder of his gospel, he's careful to also make a couple of statements along the way. First, as we noted, Jesus picked up the message of John the Baptist, repents for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But also, while Jesus' message transitioned seamlessly from John's, that is, it's an identical message, like the exact same words, in this text, we also find Jesus emphasized that that coming kingdom is not merely something to fear. It is also good news for those who will repent. John's message, if you recall, was a message of repentance, um, alerting the people that the kingdom was close because the king was close. Um, you're not ready to be part of his kingdom until you repent. And so look back at chapter 3 for just a moment in verses 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we talked about this in detail, right? Repentance is having a change of mind about sin that leads to a change of behavior in regard to sin. The apostle Paul said that John's ministry was preaching uh, the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, but also to believe on him that should come after him, that is to believe on Jesus. And so when we look at John's ministry, we would say that John's message was kind of a hellfire and brimstone sort of preaching. Like you can actually see this. This is what I wanted to see in chapter 3, verse 10. He says, every tree which doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In verse 12, he talks about he will burn up chaff with unquenchable fire. And so this is John's message. When Jesus begins his public ministry and teaching and preaching, does Jesus come with a different message than John? Well, no. The message of Messiah King Jesus is identical to John's. In verse 
17 of our text in chapter 4. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? This is the exact same words. There is nothing wrong with the sort of hellfire and brimstone message that, the, uh, that John the Baptist was preaching. In fact, the way Matthew explains this in verse 17 of our text is that Jesus began to preach. That is not simply saying that he preached for the first time. That word began is about his message. He began a message and, a, and continued preaching the same message. Look at verse 17. It essentially says from that time and going forward, he began to preach. He kept on preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And yet in this transitional text, Matthew also shows how this message of the kingdom is not all foreboding and fearful. At the same time, Matthew says Jesus was preaching just like John. He also describes down in verse 23 that Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. The gospel of the kingdom, literally the good news of the kingdom. So what is this gospel of the kingdom? I would argue it is not fundamentally different from the very gospel we proclaim today. Matthew is the only New Testament writer who uses this term, gospel of the kingdom, but that's because his emphasis is to prove that Jesus is that Messiah King. And therefore, the gospel of the kingdom to Matthew is the good news that King Jesus has come. This is a continuing theme in Jesus' ministry. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, it says that Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. There are those who would say, would try to argue that this gospel of the kingdom is only a message of good news to the Jewish nation. They would describe this as, well, Jesus has come and he has made an offer to be king. He has made an offer of the kingdom. And so he's speaking to the Jewish people that their king has come, but they rejected him. And so now there is this new gospel of Jesus that's for everybody. But I want you to know, this is not how Jesus described it. It is the express teaching of Jesus that the gospel of the kingdom is the very message that is the good news that must be taken to the whole world. At the end of this book, he prepares his church for their future ministry. He says this in Matthew 24, verse 14. He says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. And so the gospel, the good news of Messiah King Jesus, it was promised by John the Baptist. It's, it's declared in the message and ministry of Jesus. It continues to be the enduring message of good news for a world full of lost sinners. King Jesus has come with the authority and the ability to free us from sin, and that is good news. By dying in our place, he secured forgiveness for all who believe. Immediately after this text, the Lord Jesus begins in, in Matthew's cha Matthew chapters 5 through 7 
to preach the Sermon on the Mount in order to instruct people how those forgiven citizens of his kingdom should behave. And so in this transitional text, Matthew shows that the good news was prophesied in verses 12 through 16. He shows the good news is proclaimed in verses 17 through 23. And then he shows the good news is proven in verses 23 through 25. So let's look at each of those as he develops them. The good news is, was prophesied, verse 12 through 16. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. After leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region in the shadow of death, light has dawned. For, for the first time in, in many years, I've gotten to do a little bit of deer hunting this fall, although I should probably call it squirrel watching because that's mostly what I get to do. But on those mornings where you get up early while it is pitch black outside and you stumble out into the hunting blind and then just get to sit and watch as the morning sunlight slowly starts to push back the long darkness of night. It is a beautiful scene every time. Darkness cannot endure when the light comes. The scripture speaks of the coming of Messiah King Jesus as a righteous sunrise. And in 2 Peter, the apostle describes knowing the Lord Jesus through his word as having the light shine in your heart and the day dawning and the morning sun rising in your heart. You're probably familiar with the phrase that was coined by Thomas Fuller in the 1600s that says the darkest hour is just before the dawn. Well, verse 12 describes the darkest hour. After 400 years of silence, the Lord God had sent John the Baptist to prepare the way for the coming Messiah King. And many heard his message and repented of their sin. And yet in verse 12, that message is silenced. John is arrested. Matthew doesn't offer us a lot of details. We know from the other Gospels that Herod Antipas, one of the wicked sons of Herod the Great, was ruling as king and his, <clears throat> his sister-in-law Herodias had run off from, her brother, uh, from his brother Philip and Antipas had taken her in, shacking up with her, carrying on an adulterous and borderline incestuous relationship. And when John the Baptist's fame spread, Antipas was just curious about John. And so he calls and has John brought to him. However, what's John's message it doesn't matter whether he's standing in front of a, a king or a ditch digger. His message is always going to be the message of repentance. And so he looks at the king and says, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. This not only got John arrested, it eventually gets him beheaded for his stand for truth and righteousness. In God's sovereign plan, that moment of darkness is the trigger for a righteous sunrise. John's arrest 
is the virtual end of his ministry, and for Jesus, it marked the beginning of his own. Jesus returns north to Galilee in verse 12, a region that is much more densely populated than Judea is in the south. Galilee is just this mismatch of uh, Jews, but also had many Gentiles since Galilee was a sort of hub for commercial and uh, and travel. There was apparently a, a saying at the time that Judea is on the way to nowhere and Galilee is on the way to everywhere. Specifically, Jesus returned to Nazareth in verse 13, the home of his youth. And then look at verse 13, not only came, but also dwelt, it says, in Capernaum. That is more than just stopping by for a time, we would say he moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. Capernaum's a city on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee, and this is especially active in the fishing trade. And for all intents and purposes, this becomes Jesus' new hometown. If there was a an epicenter of ministry, like a base of operations for the traveling ministry of Jesus, it is Capernaum. He is going to routinely return back to that place. This is more than mere coincidence, Matthew tells us. It's the fulfillment of prophecy. In verses 14 through 16, Matthew quotes the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Leave a bookmark at our text, but I would like you to turn to Isaiah 9 for a moment. Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2, the prophet wrote about this sunrise that would come on Galilee of the Gentiles. And in the intervening uh, hundreds and hundreds of years, the people in that region had experienced exile, uh, deportation. They were sick, they were poor, downhearted depressed, but suddenly sunlight is going to burst over the horizon. And Jesus is that light. In our text, Matthew quotes Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. The reason I want you to turn to Isaiah 9 is because those verses are actually part of a bigger prophetic message that's going to sound familiar to you. If you're at Isaiah 9, you can see Matthew quotes verses 1 and 2, but look down at verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever." The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Jesus didn't come looking for a kingdom. Jesus is the promised king. He didn't just come proclaiming the good news. He is the good news. He's not just prophesied to bring light to darkness. Jesus is the light of the world. This righteous sunrise is the very son of God who's going to be born in this world and darkness cannot endure when the light comes. This is Matthew's point. Jesus, in all the things that he does, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. In in, uh, 
Isaiah 9, verse 6 through and 7, he is fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy through his birth. But even by simple acts like moving from Nazareth to Capernaum, he is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. The good news of the kingdom was prophesied, and it came in the person of Jesus. Now go back to our text. I want you to see the good news is proclaimed. In Matthew 4, starting at verse 17, or actually just verse 17 for now, for that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We noted earlier that verse 17 means essentially from that time and going forward, right, starting at that moment and continuing, Jesus began and continued to preach the message of the of repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When the, when the community of Capernaum heard this man just start his ministry and preaching this message that they knew was the message of John the Baptist, it would have created quite a stir. I think it's safe to say that Jesus was unlike all the rabbis that they had gotten used to hearing. There was a kind of authority in his words. And in chapters 5 through 7, Matthew gives us an example of that preaching ministry of Jesus and recording the Sermon on the Mount. And he also records the reaction of all those who heard the preaching of Jesus. In Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29, it says, When Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Right? There is authority inherent in the preaching ministry of Jesus, and that is even found in this word preach that Matthew uses. It is the Greek word caruso, and it means to publish or proclaim. It's not quite the same as teaching, although he does that down in verse 23. And it's not quite the same as persuading or arguing, although good preaching should be persuasive. This is a word that describes the work of a town herald who would go to a town or a village and the, the fanfare would be played and he would open a scroll and he would read the king's message to the people. He's not there in order to explain ideas or persuade about facts or debate differing opinions. This is a declaration of an authoritative message. By the way, this becomes important later when the Lord Jesus takes that authoritative message and he hands it in his authority to the church in order for them to go out and proclaim it. Right? All authority is given me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore. It sound familiar? Every rabbi the people of Capernaum had ever heard preaching was limited to trying to explain or persuade, but Jesus came giving commands, authoritative commands. Even the Old Testament prophets were limited to saying, well, thus saith the Lord. But when you read the preaching of Jesus in the next few chapters, he's consistently saying, I say to you. He is preaching the good news using his own royal authority to do it. It's proclaimed with such authority that Jesus can walk down to the seaside and issue commands to a bunch of fishermen, 
placing demands on their life for radical obedience. Look at verse 18. Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Right away, this should challenge our silly notions about the personality and character of Jesus. Whatever your imagination conjures as you try to picture Jesus, make sure that you envision a man who is authoritative and assertive enough to walk down the seaside and with a few words make a life-altering demand on a bunch of rough-and-tumble fishermen. Look, if somebody walked up to you at the gas station and started giving you orders because he claimed to be king, you would claim that man was crazy. But Jesus can go up to the harshest of men and, and give them authoritative commands and demand their radical obedience, and they listen. They take him seriously. His authority is undeniable. This is not a man to be trifled with. And when I say this is a call to radical obedience, I think we have a hard time grasping just how radical this is. Their obedience to the Lord Jesus not only required repentance, right, a change of mind about sin that leads to a change of behavior in regard to sin, but the call of Jesus also obligated them to to abandon every shred of control and expectation about their future. If they listen to him, they're going to have to rely on him for teaching. They're going to have to rely on him for direction. They're going to have to rely on him for meeting their daily needs. And that gets complicated as Peter has a wife and James and John's father relies on them for the family business and they literally leave him in the boat to go follow Jesus. You picture your typical fisherman reacting to any other man and they would have laughed him off the shoreline. And even these ones, if they had like thought that they had the option of giving this serious contemplation, they would have, they would have heard like, we're going fishing for men? We're not going to get away with throwing nets over people. And even if we could, we can't eat them. We're making a good living here. You tell us we're going to go fish for men? This whole scene is so antithetical to anything you would expect. Like, Why would they follow, and why would he want them to follow? I liked how John MacArthur describes these men. He says, quote, The disciples were selfish, proud, weak, and cowardly. They showed little potential even for dependability, much less greatness. Yet Jesus chose them for his disciples, Even to be in his inner circle of 12, they were the raw material that he would make into useful instruments. All of the disciples were probably not as rough and unpromising as the first and most dominant four Jesus called. Later on in Matthew's gospel and in Acts, we might ask ourselves, what would give these men boldness enough 
to take the gospel to the world. And the answer, or at least a part of that answer, is that the same Lord Jesus who sent them is the Lord who called them. When he says to them, all authority is given to me and in heaven and earth, and so now I'm delegating that authority to you, go and preach the gospel. They went out with that authority and preached the gospel to all nations. They went out fishing for men because they knew and remembered the Messiah King who walked down the sandy seashore and directed that authority at one day to them. And they had no option. They could not ignore it. The call of the gospel to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus is a call that is for these disciples and every disciple immediate, right? They left at once. It is radical. They dropped everything. It's personal. They are, Jesus said, follow me. They are following him as disciples. And it is authoritative. There is nothing else they could have done. But listen, the pattern that Matthew gives is this isn't just for these fishermen. These are are a special group of men, no doubt. But it's not just them. Listen to verse 23. Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. I like that Matthew describes Jesus' ministry as both teaching and preaching. Teaching is the word didasco, and it means to instruct. It carries the idea of explaining. It can even include persuading. Teaching means that Jesus took existing material, the Old Testament, and he opened and explained it so that the people in those synagogues could understand Now, just a cultural point that'll help. A synagogue was sort of the center of Jewish religious life out there in every community. Only Jewish men over the age of 30 could teach in synagogues. And this might be why part of, at least part of why God's plan included Jesus waiting until he was 30 in order to begin his ministry. Because it is a teaching and preaching ministry. This is formal teaching. And so that is, he is explaining and proclaiming. He's teaching and preaching. He's persuading people, and he's also authoritatively asserting the truth. And he showed how the good news was prophesied in the Old Testament. His ministry to was ensure that the good news of the kingdom was proclaimed, and he did that, calling people to discipleship. And finally, we see the good news is proven in verses 23 through 25. I want to pick back up at verse 23 because I want you to note how Matthew describes the ministry of Jesus using three terms. In verse 23, Jesus went about all Galilee, one, teaching in their synagogues, two, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and three, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. So here's where you find out I've actually stolen this morning's sermon outline right here from Matthew. He's given us three points, right? Our our outline that we're following is that the good news of the kingdom was prophesied. This is Jesus taught the Old Testament and what it promised. 
The good news is proclaimed. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. And the good news of the kingdom is proven. The healing ministry of Jesus is undeniable evidence that the kingdom of heaven is right there with them. Luke chapter 11, verse 20, Jesus is going to say, If I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. That is, the miracles of casting out demons and the miracles of healing, all of those things are proof that Jesus is the Messiah King. And this proof was persuasive. Look at verse 24 and 25. His fame went throughout all Syria. And they brought to him all sick people who were affected with various diseases and torments of those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Matthew lists very, various types of miraculous healing in verse 24, but each one is countering the effects of sin and the fall. Sick people with diseases and torments, whether they were demon-possessed, or Matthew says epileptics and paralytics. And I know if you're reading a King James Version there, it says lunatics instead of epileptics. The Greek word there literally means moonstruck, but it's a word that describes experiencing seizures, uncontrollable shaking. And so I just love the contrast between epileptics and paralytics. For those people who could not control their shaking, Jesus gave tranquility. And for people who could not move at all, Jesus gave them mobility. And every demon, every kind of disease, even to the extreme of death, is a result of living in this fallen sinful world. And here is Messiah King Jesus Proving that the good news of the kingdom is among them because he's giving them obvious evidence. There is this foretaste here of what it will be to live in the kingdom of God in its fullness. In that kingdom, the king has all authority. He has authority over demons, authority over disease, he even has authority over death. And just as importantly, what's evident from Matthew's text this morning is that Lord, the Lord Jesus came to assert the good news of the kingdom in more than just geopolitical terms, right? Even in the beginning of his ministry, the kingdom is not about lines on a map or signs marking the border of any nation. The people come to him in verse 25 in great multitudes. The description in verse 24 is his fame went throughout all Syria, they're coming to him from north in Galilee, from Decapolis, that is a word that means ten cities, and those were basically Gentile cities just to the east. They come from Jerusalem and Judea, the religious center of, Jeru of Judaism in the south, and they come, Matthew says, from beyond Jordan, right? So out there where the Gentiles live. We're also seeing here some differences between the ministry of John and Jesus. While they preached the same message, Jesus didn't hide himself in the wilderness of Judea in the south as John did. Jesus goes north up to Nowheresville in darkest Galilee, willing to teach in every tiny, out-of-the-way synagogue where people would meet and hope for the promise of God. And that promise, he shows, has come to them in the person of Jesus, God's Son. 
Whether you are a martyr that is locked away in the wicked king's prison, you are a dirty, smelly fisherman on the shores of Capernaum, you are sick, diseased, or even a demon-possessed wretch with no hope for deliverance, the good news has come in the person and work of Messiah King Jesus. And his message is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is good news. That kingdom is best understood by looking at the king himself. The good news of his kingdom was prophesied. And that prophecy has come to pass. Matthew describes it as uh, the morning sun blasting away the darkest night. The good news of his kingdom is proclaimed. It tells you to repent of your sins and embrace the radical calling of following Jesus as his disciple. The good news of his kingdom is proven. Sin has no power over the authority of King Jesus. And yet the good news of the kingdom is only good news if you hear him, if you follow him, if you will drop everything and embrace him in faith and be the loving subject of Messiah King Jesus, then the good news of the kingdom is good news for you.